70 million adults in the United States have a criminal record. This is season two of 70 Million, an open source podcast about how people, neighborhoods, counties, and cities are breaking cycles of incarceration, starting with the local jail. I'm your host, Mitzi Miller. So I got to experience the uncomfortability of just being stuffed in a cage and all. That was real scary. We're keeping people down there with rats, roaches. They got black mold. And we spend $16 million on it every year. We eliminated cash bail bonds in the city of Atlanta. There is no one who's been incarcerated, including myself, who has been helped by incarceration. More than 2 million adults in the U.S. have an intellectual or developmental disability. Called IDD for short, the range of conditions includes autism, exposure to drugs or alcohol before birth, and childhood brain injuries. These diagnoses are all different, but there are some common threads for people who have them. One is that everyday tasks can be extra challenging. Things like following instructions, filling out forms, or adapting to unplanned changes and dealing with police in the courts presents very specific obstacles. Today we're going to Oregon, where a little over 2% of the prison population has been diagnosed as having an IDD. That number doesn't tell us everything. We can't say for sure how many people either haven't been diagnosed or never reported it to authorities. But for the people the state knows have IDD, Oregon has an innovative program called Support Services Brokerage. It was first started to connect people to the kinds of services all states provide and help with things like housing and jobs. But the program also helps people already in jail and sometimes helps keep them out altogether. Reporter Cheryl Green has our story. I meet 40-year-old Patricia Kennedy on a sunny spring morning. She lives in a small mobile home park in Roseburg, Oregon. I'm here with her case manager, Robin Reedy, who's happy to come out to Patricia's place instead of meeting in the office. I'm not really a good morning. Robin wraps Patricia in a warm hug. Patricia has long blonde hair, meticulously styled. She wears a baggy sweatshirt and jeans and makeup that makes her eyes shimmer. Oh, okay, so this is Cheryl. Hi, Hi. Cheryl. Come on in. Nice to meet you. Inside, the dishwasher is running, but there are piles of laundry in the living room. Patricia's been too upset to get to it. Okay, so last night, Trevor. She tells Robin that she had an argument with the mobile home park manager the night before. That's the terrible, terrible night she's talking about. She called the cops on us, and so I called the cops on her. And later on, she tells Robin, she was still upset, so she called the police department again. She told the officer she couldn't reach any of her personal support workers, the people who would usually help in these situations. So she was calling him instead. She says she told him, I can't calm down. I can't, me- I can't, I've been trying to meditate and I can't even get out of my head. He told me to put on some jazz music. Put on some jazz music. Did <laughs> you tell him wrong music? The police don't know Patricia as well as Robin does, so they don't know that she doesn't like jazz. But they field a lot of calls from people who don't have emergencies. And Patricia told us that putting on some music to relax was actually a pretty good suggestion. They helped me calm down last night a little bit. So you've actually been having some 
good interaction with the police officers lately. Mm-hmm. I still had to call the non-emergency line and get the get the ambulance over here because I was freaking out. Patricia tells me she had a severe traumatic brain injury when she was 19. She's never been incarcerated, but she's had a lot of contact with police. It wasn't so long ago that if she forgot whether she'd taken her medication, she would have panicked and called 911. That could get her charged with a Class A misdemeanor. You're not supposed to call 911 unless it's really an emergency. But I try not to do that anymore. She and Robin have worked hard on learning the difference between when it's time to call 911 and when the non-emergency number is enough. Oh, that's mom. Robin has been Patricia's case manager for nearly a decade through the Southern Oregon Support Brokerage. Brokerages are non-governmental organizations with case managers that provide an alternative to the county-based services that every state has. A big difference is that brokerage caseloads are capped. Case managers I talked to said that having smaller caseloads can mean they have more time to spend with each client. Robin says she has to check in with Patricia once a month. But she's happy to talk more often if it helps Patricia stay focused. Every morning, she says. About 8, 8.01, the phone rings, and I, I'm usually shocked if it's not Trish. If it's an average day, I only call you about five times a day. If when I'm really anxious, I call you like 30 times a day. Before the brokerage is open, a person like Patricia wouldn't have had an advocate like Robin. Oregon had large IDD institutions, which gained the reputation for neglect and abuse. The state started closing them in 1987. That meant thousands of people then needed to be set up with services individually. Case managers were overloaded and focused on housing people in staffed group homes and managing crises. Wait lists to get services sometimes lasted years. In 2000, five Oregon families sued the state. The result was forming the brokerages. The first clients started enrolling in 2001. Their mission was to help clients access services and live independently. Things have changed a lot since then. The Affordable Care Act gave states a way to access more funding for IDD. Oregon was one of the first to opt in, and now county agencies can provide similar services to brokerages. And the state no longer has wait lists. People are not denied services at Multnomah County. Um, If we get an influx of people coming in, clients coming in, then the case managers end up having to absorb that somehow, you know, and we do. My name is Kimber Seifert, and I am a senior case manager with Multnomah County DD Services. Kimber and I are talking in a conference room in the downtown Portland DD Services office. Kimber says overall, Oregon's system is really strong. But there are holes. Jails and the prisons really don't have the kind of supports that these clients need. Kimber and many people I talk to say since not everyone with an IDD has an official diagnosis, the number of incarcerated people with IDD is likely higher than what's been reported. Some people might be struggling but not know it's related to a disability. They know that there's something that's different about them um, that makes it harder for them to to understand, you know, information that's given to them or, or makes it harder for them to actually express themselves. From the moment a police officer approaches a person with IDD, there can be huge consequences. Take, for example, the story of 15-year-old Sir Jay Millage. 
An African-American, Sir's autistic and non-speaking, which you can't tell just by looking at him. It's the middle of the night in Portland in 2006. He's walking barefoot down the center line of a bridge wearing only shorts and swinging a stick. Someone calls the police. Officers approach and address him from their vehicle. And instead of responding, Sir keeps walking. If you're familiar with autism, walking away is understandable and not unusual. But if you're not familiar with autism, you might think someone like Sir is just being defiant. And that's what happens. The officers suspect Sir is either under the influence or mentally unstable, and they tase and beat him with a baton. He's taken to the emergency room for medical attention. This story highlights a few things. One, that if a person with IDD can't explain or advocate for themselves, situations with police can quickly escalate. And two, that there are real racial disparities in who gets support. Black children with autism and language or learning disabilities, for instance, tend to be diagnosed later than white children, which can delay getting support and services. In the end, Sir Millage wasn't arrested. But when a person with IDD is arrested, more problems can arise. The mandatory Miranda warning has complicated sentences and vocabulary. That can be confusing for someone who needs more time to understand what they're told. Every command, question, and piece of instruction is a new chance for miscommunication. Same thing with bookings and hearings. That's why a case manager like Kimber can make all the difference. I finally find out the name and number of a lawyer, and I'll call them about a client that, you know, is in jail and facing, you know, hearings, and they'll be like, oh, he's DD? I didn't know that. Yeah. Lawyers aren't necessarily trained in how to make things clear for clients whose thinking or language skills might be impaired. So Kimber and other case managers I spoke with told me the lawyers appreciate their help. So what can you do for them then? <laughs> That's what I usually hear, you know. Case managers aren't just advocates. Remember, their main job is to connect people with IDD to services and accommodations. To take advantage of that, people have to know a case manager like Kimber is an option. One of the biggest problems is they don't know we're there. Counties and brokerages both work to get the word out with brochures at schools, doctor's offices, and info fairs for IDD services. But still, not everyone who could qualify will come across a brochure. This is one reason some people fall through the cracks. Do you want me to be here while she's interviewing you, or do you want me to just disappear? Um, Does it matter to you? Not really. Okay, all right. So maybe I'll just sit in the background, and then maybe if I get too bored, I'll leave. <laughs> all right. No, you'll start correcting me. No, I'll, I'll make sure I don't do that. <laughs> Kate Threadgill lives in Beaverton, just outside Portland, with his adoptive parents, Deborah and Ron. He's a slim man with glasses and wispy hair. When I first meet them at their house, he's a few months shy of 25. Kate and Deborah take turns sitting on an overstuffed sofa and petting a small dog who's dressed in a gray and white sweater. Ginger loves to have her belly rubbed. She's basically my younger sister, who's technically older than me, but in dog years. Both Deborah and Ron say Kate has always been open and sociable. Kate agrees, but... Some people, they just didn't understand me. And they judged me because of that. I was in depression most of elementary school. Cade's attentive and finishes his parents' sentences or corrects them if he feels they got a detail wrong. 
Deborah tells me how growing up, Cade received extra educational supports for reading and ADHD. But now he reads volumes. He reads everything. So that's, um, that's kind of what, up until grade school, and then he... Um, Don't forget you homeschooled me. And, and I, I homeschooled him because of the fact that he wasn't progressing in school. After homeschooling, he went back to public school, then alternative school and private school, and finally went for a GED. After that, he struggled to keep a job. I worked at Salvation Army for a little while, and I was at a donation pod. Some of the people that donated things would say, they would see my expression at the item that they would donate, and they were like, do you want this? And I was like, yes. But he knew the Salvation Army would consider this stealing. Employees aren't supposed to take donations for themselves. I actually had to quit the job. Because he was worried about the consequences of taking donations. By the time he was 19, Kate had already been in counseling for many years. But around this time, he changed therapists. It was when we switched therapists and he interviewed Kate and, and he the second visit, he said, you know, I think Kate has some threads of autism. Deborah says this is the first time anyone had suggested Cade might have a developmental disability. His parents took him for testing, and he was diagnosed with Asperger's, what's now just called autism spectrum disorder. Right away, Cade's diagnosis helped his family understand what they'd always called his quirkiness and why the educational services were never enough. Revelations like this aren't uncommon, Kids with IDD can go undiagnosed, sometimes until adulthood, if people around them don't know what to look for. When we read about some of the social cues and things like that, we said, this is it. This, it, it it's Asperger. So Cade's 19, had quit his job, gotten this new diagnosis, and like many teens, he's thinking about his independence. But his parents are worried about him being able to live on his own. Since he isn't enrolled in Medicaid, group homes with built-in structure for people with IDD aren't an option. You know, we had wanted Cade to be able to start moving out, moving on his own, but realized he needed some independent living skills. Like managing his finances and keeping track of his own schedule. So they go to a housing conference hosted by the Autism Society of Oregon and find a table with information about brokerages. Then they explained how a person gets to be uh, with a brokerage and that they had to apply and they had to go through this process to be classified for development and disabled. One of the big issues with the IDD services system is that it's bureaucratic. To get a case manager first, Cade has to be certified as eligible through the county, not the brokerage. That process can take months and they don't know it yet, but for Cade, time matters. Where we were living, there was a apartment complex across the street and Cade would go and we'd play with the younger kids and we said Cade that's not such a good idea because you know you're you're a teenager you want to be a good example but it's not good one day Cade leaves his tablet on the dining room table and his dad spots a text from a 14 year old girl who lives nearby from the text it's clear that Cade and the girl are sexually active she's a minor and at 19 he's legally an adult I felt that I was emotionally, socially accepted by younger people, probably because of my maturity level at the time. Which is something Cade's parents agree with. Later that day... They told me that, yes, they were going to call the police. I was completely supportive 
I, once they laid out the whole situation for me, I could actually comprehend it. And I actually understood just how wrong of a situation I got myself into. They give statements to the police and surrender Kate's tablet. Then, nothing. A few months pass. So then we get a phone call, and the detective said, I've been putting off this phone call, but the grand jury just met, and they have an arrest warrant for Cade. We were, in, uh, well, shock is to put it mildly. As Cade's dad, Ron, is leaving to drive Cade to the county jail, Deborah reminds him. I said, now, please make sure that they know that he has Asperger's. Make sure they know he has Asperger's. There's so much emotion that you don't realize you're going to feel when you're actually in jail. You feel like you're all alone, even though I'm ADHD and I should be taking ADHD medication. Because it's a drug, they wouldn't allow me to. And my parents specifically told them he has ADHD, he has Asperger's, he needs to take these pills daily. If I had been in jail longer, I would have been able to, in a sense, file for the ability to get my medication, but I wasn't in there long enough to get my medication and start that process. I had anxiety attacks every single day. I would be in tears. The public information officer for the Washington County Jail confirmed that Cade wasn't given his medication while he was there. The officer told me it's standard practice when someone's first incarcerated if the medication isn't for a life-threatening condition. Cade stays in jail for two weeks while his family gets together the money for bail. Meanwhile, totally separately, the county is processing his application for a case manager. A few months before Cade's sentencing... We got a report that said that, yes, he qualified for developmental disabilities classification. So with that letter, then we submitted it to our, the public defender. Then there were extenuating circumstances. Cade would have been sentenced to a minimum of five years in prison. But since he qualifies for a case manager, the court took into consideration that his disability played a role in how well he could understand his choices and their consequences. So the prosecutor explained to us that he really did not want to prosecute Cade because he realized that he had limitations. It was just a lot of tender mercy. So we've, we feel very grateful. The prosecutor declined an interview for this story, and Cade's public defender wasn't available. But I've listened to audio from all of his hearings. At sentencing, the public defender brought up Cade's disability and his extremely supportive parents. He and the prosecutor agreed ahead of the hearing to ask for probation instead of prison time. In approving that sentence, the judge cites Cade's youth and willingness to seek treatment. Cade qualifies for early release as well, and within three years, he finishes sex offender therapy and is off probation. It's been four years since Cade was in jail. Now, he's working part-time and shooting at the archery range every weekend. Recently, Kate decided to switch from the county agency to a brokerage to see if the brokerage might offer him more than the county can. Because he doesn't get Medicaid, he can get check-ins with a case manager, but she can't connect him to any other services. 
One afternoon, a brokerage case manager named Aaron Wilson comes over to meet with Cade's family. Hello, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. <laughs> this is Ginger. This is our official greeter. Ginger. You don't need to be nervous. <laughs> Any other pets? No, no. Just her. I've wanted to get another pet. My mom and dad are just like, no. <laughs> well, we, we kind of think that Cade needs to take care of himself first. Once they settle in to talk, Aaron focuses completely on Cade. She takes notes on his goals, struggles, skills, and interests. My knowledge and experience comes from my caseload. So if I haven't had to directly help someone find something, then it's just kind of talking with my colleagues and right. researching on my right. own, too. Kate and his family are most interested in how Aaron can help him prepare for a job. Only about a fifth of adults with IDD hold paid jobs, often in food service or other entry-level labor. Cade's applying to start an electrician's apprenticeship. Yes. I'm not worried about how physical it is. No, no. I'm worried about getting the interview and right, right. passing the interview. So those are the, those are the things that we are looking at in terms of, do you have workshops on interviews? How do you interview? Deborah says Kate overthinks things. He could actually interview himself out of a job. Deborah and Ron don't want to be the ones to practice his interviewing skills with him. If I was as comfortable as I am with my parents, with the interviewee, interviewer, yeah. I, I'd have no problem. He's actually done a few job interviews but his court case still follows him. You know, he's been accepted, they sent him off to the lab work, and then they did the background check, and then they dismissed him. Which was pretty discouraging because we were very upfront with, with everything. Annual surveys called the National Court Indicators suggest people in Oregon are pretty happy with their case management services overall, but a few bills are pending that could change things. Two could expand brokerage services in different ways, but one recently passed that narrows who's eligible for case management. That means some people could actually lose what they have. Proposed federal changes to Medicaid could also affect funding. For now, county agency and brokerage representatives, self-advocates, and others across the state are doing outreach, testifying at the Capitol, and waiting. So I think what we know is that Cato turned 25 in a couple of weeks. Yeah. And so... You think you know? Well, <laughs> I always have to think. This is really the first opportunity that we've had to start exploring things that just wouldn't have come up on the horizon several years ago. Yeah. So, so we're pretty encouraged. But then, Cade's birthday rolls around. The family gets so involved in party planning that they forget Cade's yearly window to re-register as a sex offender. On April 20th, Deborah's gardening when she realizes it's the last day he can go in. She drops everything and tells Cade to get to the police station. Cade rushes there, but they won't let him in to register. It's Saturday. They're not fully staffed. On Monday, Ron drives him back to the police station, and he's arrested on the spot. The failure to register is his fourth felony. But on May 2nd, Cade arrives at court, and the DA says they're not pursuing the case. Still, the arrest remains on his record. Deborah wraps up the story to me on the phone with her usual mix of no-nonsense focus and lighthearted laughing. Maybe he's off probation, she tells me, but he's not off probation with us. The last time we talked, 
Kate had just started considering moving into an open room with some friends and away from his parents. He called it a scary and mysterious prospect, but a step he hopes to take soon, ready or not. Cheryl Green is based in Portland, Oregon. We'd love to hear about reform efforts in your communities. So please email us at hello at 70millionpod.com. For more information, our episode toolkit, and to download the transcript for this episode, visit 70millionpod.com. 70 Million is an open source podcast, so we invite you to use our episodes, transcripts, syllabi, and episode toolkits in your classrooms, organizations, and anywhere you find them helpful. You may rebroadcast parts of or entire episodes without permission. Just please drop us a line so we can keep track. 70 Million is made possible by a grant from the Safety and Justice Challenge at the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. This podcast is a production of Lantigua Williams & Co. It's edited by Jen Shan and Casey Miner and mixed by Louise Gill. Our associate producers are Adiza Egan and Cher Vincent. Our marketing specialist is Kate Crochelle. Our staff writer is Nissa Ree. Our intern is Emma Forbes. And our fact checker is Sarah McClark. Juleka Lantigua Williams is the creator and executive producer. I'm your host, Mitzi Miller.